Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? Yo, I'm here. Yeah, you are here. I'm here and I'm queer. <laughs> doing all right otherwise, though? Yes. Excellent, excellent. Okay. Yeah, but I have a hurricane coming up. Yeah, what is that all about? It's been like 30 years since Boston's had anything of the sort. Did you know we had a tornado warning yesterday, I think it was? Tornado warning. Yeah, I heard about this after it got retracted. Yeah, so there was like a hurricane, or sorry, a tornado warning for about 45 minutes in eastern Massachusetts. And I was like, I thought this was something reserved for the Midwest. We ain't supposed to be getting tornadoes out here. But I also don't know the rules of weather like that. And I could be just totally talking and saying nothing. Yeah. But yeah. Weather's been interesting out here. Um, just looking forward to the fall coming as well. I think that might be my favorite season for fashion. So I'm looking forward to fall. Pumpkin just, spice. I'm not looking forward to that as much. But, you know, Derek, actually, one of the first <laughs> gifts he gave me was a bag of seasoned pumpkin seeds. And I really enjoyed those. Oh. I, I finished those rather quickly. They were quite tasty. But, yeah. Yum. If there's nothing else that I'll look forward to that's pumpkin theme for this season, I'll look forward to season pumpkin seeds. Um, anyway, I think we're going to have more to talk about today than we think we're going to talk about because we're just having one section that is only going to span about 50 some verses. But I have a suspicion we're going to take a bit of time. So let's just go ahead and run right into things. But before we do, I want to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are going to be in Doctrine and Covenants section 93 today. Um... Just one section, like I was saying earlier. And uh, for background, I don't have a lot for this. In fact, the, the section header of this is literally just one sentence that gives us the day. And that's basically it. Revelation given through Joseph Smith, the prophet at Kirtland, Ohio, May 6, 1833. That is literally all the historical context that we are getting for this section. So there's maybe... I was trying to like just glean from what is written in these verses, what might've been the context. Um, I thought that there was a possibility that maybe Joseph Smith was working on his translation of the book of John, since there are some echoes of uh, the book of John in this section, the first chapter, but uh, it looks like his completion of that translation predates this revelation by, it looks like about three months or so. And don't none of the changes that Joseph made to the actual translation of uh, the book of John match what is written here. So, yeah, what I thought was a pretty clever idea on my part was actually a bust. And I don't have anything else for historical context or even a yeah. speculation. for. Well, it looks like mm -hmm. this is a follow-up to the School of the Prophets revelations. That one that we got back in, like, section 89? Right, so this is more, uh, more the same... So here I have uh, from Dale Luffman's Commentary on the Community of Christ, Doctrine and Covenants. This is his introduction, his historical introduction to this section. Now, Community of Christ numbers the sections differently than we do, so I'm going to give both numbers. So for our section 93, it's their section 90, and here's the commentary. Instruction and counsel had been oh, received. Hold on. Our section 93? Our section 93 is their section 90. 
R93 is their 90. Okay. Apologies. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) So Luffman says, instruction and counsel had been received regarding the school of the prophets and ministries associated with learning. The School of the Prophets was a name given to non-accredited seminaries that sprang up all along the East Coast during that time period. Instruction in sections 85 and 87, and for us, that's sections 88 and 90, had been enthusiastically accepted by the elders of the church in Kirtland, Ohio. After the educational and formational experiences afforded by the School of the Prophets, high priests met May 4, 1833 in Kirtland. Being acutely aware of the limitations on their learning given facilities available, they called for the construction of a schoolhouse to support priesthood instruction. On May 6, 1833, inspired counsel was received addressing the church elders. This revelation would be in response to and in harmony with Section 85, which is our Section 88, given December 27, 1832, as well as Section 87, which is R, section 90, given March 8, 1833. So that's basically the uh, the historical context as they were dealing with the school of the prophets and following up to the revelations we've already had on putting together a house of learning, learning by study and by faith, those things. Very interesting. That's going to help us to... Uh or read this a lot better. So thank you for adding that little bit of context. Um, So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Section 93. I don't have anything or rather a lot to say until we get to uh, verse 19 or so. Uh, Would you like to begin, Derek? Sure. Let me just talk a little bit about verses 11 through 14. It's very interesting that says... It's very interesting. The text says that Jesus received not of the fullness at the first. And I think that's really interesting. What does that mean? And I think he doesn't receive a fullness of visible glory and exaltation. Like he's, to me, fully God, consistent mm-hmm. with John 1.1. 1, 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here we've got the fullness of someone who's incarnate. And we see this very clearly in Philipp, in the Christ hymn of Philippians 2, that Jesus did not take equality with God as something to exploit, but cast it aside and divested that privilege and took upon himself the form of a servant. And I think that's what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And then later, he was given the fullness, mm-hmm. uh, the name which is above every name. So I just want to put that is that For me, I always go back to what is the Christ-like model? What is the cruciform shape that we should give our presence in the world? And I think so many of us want to seek power, and it's actually you gain power by giving it up, Mm. quite paradoxically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I noticed that uh, this is a... I don't know how to like phrase it, but this is like one of those theological questions that you don't really know that you have until you like really come across it. Uh, one of my favorite scholars in the LDS world uh, is uh, Truman G. Madsen. And I noticed that while now I was uh, preparing to, you know, learn about this section, I noticed that a lot of my study materials referenced him quite liberally. Uh, this is from um, 
I guess, his book, Joseph Smith, the Prophet, where he proceeds to just go through a list of theological questions that Section 93 answers and then, uh, you know, basically just goes through the answers. One of them was this whole piece about Christ, about how Christ could have been absolutely human and absolutely divine at the same time. And uh, the answer that Truman G. Madsen highlights is that he was not both at the same time, but rather he received not the fullness at first, but continued until he received a fullness. And that's not really a way of thinking about Christ that we are necessarily conditioned to view him. Like we've read these verses before about him going grace to grace and receiving a fullness, but this idea that he didn't really he wasn't really the Christ when he was born or this idea that Jesus Christ wasn't always the Christ, but he had to like become that grace to grace. That's just an interesting way of looking at it. Um, that I think, I don't know. I haven't totally decided how I feel about that, but it does kind of uh, put in perspective what human beings are kind of like this divinity in embryonic form thing that perhaps Christ also had to experience in a way. So that's one of the questions he answers. He also talks about things like, uh, you know, biblical determinism, the degree to which Jesus was divine and human, what truth is exactly, why we have bodies, just stuff like that. This is all questions that uh, Truman G. Madison says Doctrine and Covenants 93 answers. And that's, again, in his book, uh, Joseph Smith, the Prophet. I think that was published like 20 years ago. I can put a link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Quite. Really like that guy. But anyway, anything else on that verse you want to touch upon real nope, quick? Nope, that's it. Other right. than just being a model for... You know, here's something very interesting about theology, is people uh -huh. think it's some abstract thing. But I've talked about this before, uh, that the Lutheran dogmaticians of the 16th century said that th theology is a practical aptitude or practical habit, habitus practicus, right? It is something that actually makes a difference in real life. It's about how you flow through the world. It's about your your behavior is different because of this. It's not just some abstract technicality that you know just for curiosity's sake that has no impact. Or The, the standard uh, straw man is how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, right? What does that matter? And I think everything matters and everything actually has a practical significance. Like all of our doctrines should give you comfort, insight, encouragement, guidance for your life in this life. Um, and that's true for eschatology. It's true for your view of creation. It's true for all of these things. It should change your behavior. How you treat others and how you worship God should be different based on your theology. Absolutely. Speaking of which, uh, that, that that's actually a great segue into what I want to discuss that I think really hit me in section 19, or sorry, verse 19. It explained that we were receiving these sayings because, or that rather, we may know how and uh, what we worship is what the verse says. So I started looking for the how as soon as I hit this verse uh, so I could make sure I knew what the Lord was talking about as a word. What does he mean? He's giving us these particular sayings that we might know how and what we worship. So I started looking for that how in the immediate verse. And uh, we get the biggest clue, in my opinion, in the following verse. We get an if-then statement. It says, for if you keep my commandments, 
you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace, close quote. So there's at least two things to note here. And I got to read one more passage uh, so that we can, so that like, so that we can understand fully what this first thing alludes to, particularly that fullness part. This is verse uh, 27 and 28. And no man receiveth a fullness unless he keepeth his commandments. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. So receiving a fullness and receiving light and truth until we are glorified in truth and know all things, those are conditional upon us keeping commandments. Now, that might not be a new idea. Uh, Jesus, at the very least, alluded to a similar thing during his earthly ministry. John seven seventeen. if any man will learn the doctrine or rather will know the doctrine, he will know the doctrine, whether it be of me or whether it be of myself, if he basically does it, I think is what the verse amounts to. Um, but perhaps these things, receiving a fullness and receiving uh, truth and light, perhaps they are synonymous the way they are used here. I don't quite feel the need to draw that conclusion yet, but what we do know is that keeping the commandments is a require for both of those things. Uh, and going back to verses 19 and 20, we are told that these sayings are to teach us how to worship, that we might in due time receive the fullness. So part one of this business is that one way we worship the Lord is in receiving light and truth, and we can't do that without keeping the commandments. So this is kind of almost the Lord explicitly saying that a form of worship is found in keeping the commandments in receiving light and truth. Uh, the part two I see when it comes to knowing how to worship is alluded back in verses 12 and 13, where we learn that the Savior received a fullness the same way that we are commanded to receive a fullness. He continued from grace to grace until he received the fullness. Perhaps not even a part two to this business, really, but I, I guess rather another way to look at uh, worship we, is that we uh, worship by emulation. Now, I'm going to quote uh, Bruce R. McConkie here real quick at, you know, risk of incurring the wrath of some of our listeners. I know how a lot of us feel about Bruce R. McConkie, but, you know, I really like what he has to say here about this particular interpretation. He says, perfect worship is emulation. We honor those whom we imitate. The most perfect way to worship is to be as holy as Jehovah is holy. It is to be pure as Christ is pure. It is to do the things that enable us to become like the Father. The course is one of obedience. So there's two, like I said, two parts to this. Worship is in um, keeping the commandments. Worship is more specifically in emulation. So I just thought that was interesting because there's one more thing that I think merits consideration. And though I believe it to be true, and there's evidence of this elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, evidence of it in talks, and uh, our study materials seem to affirm it as well. I don't know. I just want to say, I don't know that this connects the idea directly to worship, but I'm going to try to connect this idea mm -hmm. to worship. And I want to know what you think about it, Derek, uh, as I explain this. Um, but this is the idea that learning truth is a form of worship as well. Mm -hmm. Perhaps since uh, the glory of God is intelligence, this is moving on to verse 36. And since light and truth are synonymous here in verse 36, light and truth are synonymous with intelligence, according to that verse, and we're commanded to receive light and truth to receive a fullness, then 
could we perhaps conclude that there is a commandment to worship by learning, by obtaining uh, knowledge as a means to that exaltation? And uh, more of this exalting knowledge comes by obedience to the light and truth that we receive. As it says in verse 28, he that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. So I think that there is a commandment in here implicitly that says we have to learn truth and light, that we have to receive knowledge, that gaining intelligence is a commandment and is a a precursor to receiving of a fullness. Now, there's another direction I want to go with that, but I just want to uh, get your feelings on that, Derek, before I proceed. Right. I like this idea that acquiring knowledge insofar as you're able. Remember, let's just back up and say that in the gospel, we're not required to run faster than we have strength. So Uh we need to make sure that we recognized issues of ability and disability here Certainly. and that not everyone is going to be able to do everything that everyone else can. Mm-hmm. But insofar as you are able, it is required of us to do what, what's within our power to learn. I like what it says in DNC 130 verses 18 and 19. Whatever principle of intelligence we attain unto in this life, it will rise with us in the resurrection. And if a person gains more knowledge and intelligence in this life through his diligence and obedience than another, he'll have so much the advantage in the world to come. Mm. Now, I hate to say this, but some of us are going to be way more advantaged than others. And it's going to be the people on the margins because Mm -hmm. we have to do the work. Mm -hmm. Like, we don't have the privilege of just coasting on something. We get challenged by people within our own tradition who say we have no place here and we have mm-hmm. to know the scriptures better than anyone else we have to know the tradition better than anyone else if we're going to survive one day in this tradition yes sir so yes i think there is a commandment that insofar as you are able you must do what you can to learn mm-hmm. i love what um elder maxwell says he says um for a disciple of jesus christ academic scholarship is a form of worship. You've heard this? Mm, yeah. And it's so true. But it's so different than the culture of our church. Absolutely. And I um I just walk into this church and I'm like, what's wrong? We have this birthright mm-hmm. like Esau that we're selling for for something that's worthless. Mm-hmm. We have a birthright of the ability to to learn by study and by faith to to have ongoing revelation to there's no limit to what we can learn in this life and i think so much about the gospel is learning and understanding and increasing in in knowledge and a lot of people just want to sit with whatever level of faith development they had in primary hmm. and we do not accept that for issues of finance like mm-hmm. if someone was 40 years old, and they had the same view of finances as when they were 10, we would say there's something, there's something, there's a problem. Right. If they had the same view of Santa Claus as when they were 10, if they had the same view of intimate relationships as when they were 10, boy, we, we, we would have a problem. Yes, sir. And maybe some Latter-day Saints actually do <laughs> think about <laughs> relationships as when, the same as when they were 10. Mm-hmm. But somehow, we would never tolerate that for finance or relationship or business, but we tolerate that for religion. There are people that literally have the same view of God as when they were baptized at eight years old. Mm-hmm. And that's fine when you're eight, but if you don't mature, if you don't go beyond that, we've got a problem, and, mm-hmm. and we're bearing the cost 
for that problem. I want to talk a little bit about what Jesus said in Matthew 7. Mm. By their fruits, you shall know them. Come on. And let's talk about the fruits of our church. And this is not going to be a completely pretty picture. Our church, at least in America, I don't know how it is in other countries. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that we don't have the church turning the saints of Ghana into Trumpists. I hope that's not happening. (laughs) But something about the church in America, at least, socializes to people to be Trump worshipers, to be anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers, to be racists and white supremacists, to be homophobic and biphobic and transphobic. And it's not, um, and we, people, we can't say, oh, just people have their agency, and so they mess up. There is something structural in there in this church that strongly leads people into those things, and I find it a tragedy that does not at all sanctify the name of Jesus, whose whose uh, whose name is on this church. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this? Um, I definitely agree that there is a. For lack of a better word, something in the water at the Mormon Church, even though it's uh, not totally unique to us, it's it's more specifically in our uh, in our cultural DNA. We have we have evolved as a people to depend on American standards of respectability, more specifically white supremacy for our survival, and we've been that way since 1852. We needed to embrace anti-Black racism in order to exist peacefully in a white supremacist society because that's what uh, white respectability required. And if you didn't adhere to those standards, uh, you know, it's not just white supremacy, but it's also homophobia. It's also, uh, you know, patriarchy. If you didn't embrace those things, you were ostracized or snuffed out even worse. That's the story of many European immigrants at that point in history. Uh, Paul Reeves' Religion of a Different Color is a great treatment of this, by the way. But basically, the premise is you erase the parts of your identity and culture that are not respectable by American standards or GTFO. That was the narrative at uh, you know the time of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the like. It's still kind of the narrative now. Nowhere was that more plain in our history, Mormon's history, uh, than Missouri. Now, while I don't think that this phenomenon is unique to the Mormon religion, that is to say the phenomenon of embracing white supremacy as a requirement for cultural acceptance as an American, as a Christian, or a member of uh, the community, I am of the opinion that we should know better, even though I also want to give us the grace enough to say we're just as human as anyone else. Uh, This is our heritage, and our church is still run primarily by the descendants of that heritage. Therefore, we reward and we put in leadership uh, folks who preserve that heritage, no matter what color, ethnicity, or nationality they are. That's the machine we built. And the machine just keeps running without us being consciously aware of it. And we risk safety and comfort by simply acknowledging it, let alone uh, fighting it. Yeah, the whole message of the New Testament is to not hold on to safety, comfort, and and. Paul said in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Mm -hmm. Like, we are the people that would rather go to the lions Mm -hmm. than uh, betray the essence of the gospel, which in the New Testament is absolutely at the core uh, about anti-racism. It's about mm-hmm. bringing all of people back into reconciliation, having one multi-ethnic family. This is really mm-hmm. what 
Paul Paul is teaching. That's his whole ministry is the incorporation mm-hmm. of the Gentiles. Like it, this isn't like an add-on, a little attachment that you have to pay extra for. You know what I'm talking about? These little upgrades at yeah. the on the airplane. Like yeah. oh, you get extra legroom if you pay this. No, this this is a requirement. Anti-racism isn't the extra legroom that you add on to your journey. It is the journey. Mm-hmm. It's the send. It's the core of the journey. And so I'm just so frustrated with why why we're not better like we are god's true church led by god appointed prophets Mm -hmm. and we just don't live into that i think part of the problem is our leaders don't model healthy disagreement they don't Mm -hmm. model um change they don't model Mm -hmm. oops i got this wrong let me update so how are we on as the people going to change our minds when we need to Mm-hmm. update with evidence how are we going now i shouldn't say that because our leaders have on certain issues like vaccines as facts change and as more uh, knowledge happens and as the situation on the ground changes they have updated and gotten stronger with their vaccine related stuff and church and temple closing and stuff like that and they've adapted to the situation mm-hmm. but we need more of that we need more people saying at least bruce r mcconkey said i was wrong yeah. Right about racism. He says, whoops, forget everything I said. Mm-hmm. Like, we need more modeling of that. I think that's why we have such a problem with these things in our culture and by their fruits. And our fruits don't look real good, especially when you compare us to other churches. Mm-hmm. I think we, if we are led by prophets, we should be ahead of every other church on every issue. Mm-hmm. And on some, we are ahead, like refugees, vaccines, at least the leaders are trying to do what they can. Um, but for certain things like uh, race, gender, and orientation, and, and gender identity, we're going to be 50 years behind mm-hmm. where someone without the light of, of ongoing revelation can get. I'm thinking in my head, so I'm planning to teach tomorrow Theodore Parker's sermon. Oh, snap. You're teaching tomorrow. I am teaching in my own elders quorum tomorrow. Check I've, that out. I'm a, <laughs> we're both teaching tomorrow. <laughs> I'm a substitute in my ward for someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't normally teach elders quorum. I teach gospel doctrine, but they somehow mistakenly said, hey, you're going to teach elders quorum. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. We're going to read uh, Theodore Parker's sermon called uh, A Discourse on the Transient and Permanent in Christianity. And Parker was a, a Unitarian minister in Boston, he gave this famous, infamous sermon in 1841, and I better not talk about it because otherwise I'm going to take up all our time on this. But my point <laughs> is, there is something about Unitarian Universalism that I would like to to name is that they've been leaders, right? I, do you know the story of James Reeb, the uh, Unitarian Universalist minister who gave his life at Selma? No. Well, he... Uh, he uh, was a white UU minister who came down to Selma and protested, and the white segregationists were actually more mad at him than at the black people because uh, they felt like, oh, this white dude is betraying white solidarity, and that made them angry in a different way than black people make them angry, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they killed him. The segregationists killed James Reeb. I'm not trying to make him the hero, right? Obviously, black people should be centered. 
But my question is, why weren't there any Mormons there? Why do we not have stories of Mormons giving their life at Selma or Mormons giving them their life in uh, protecting Jews in the Holocaust? Why do we not have more martyrs for – we've got martyrs who, who are giving their life for the lie about the vaccines, right? There's people dying for the wrong reason mm -hmm. because they refuse to get vaccines, Right. They're they're being martyrs for a lie. Why not? Why can't we have more martyrs for the truth? Why weren't we there? Why weren't we leaders? We should have been there marching with Dr. King. We should have been there marching at Stonewall. Right. Mm -hmm. We should have been there. Uh, other other churches are there. Um, uh, our Jewish friends were have been there, too. Mm -hmm. So why? Why? Like. If it's by their fruits, we're we've got a big problem. Yeah, big problem. Like, how are we going to? I have a friend who's a Unitarian Universalist minister who, because of my his respect for me, decided to step some feet into the online Mormon world, and he had to step back not because of the queerphobic uh, piece, but because of the the Trumpism and the vaccineism and the whatever isms that. Like people, yeah, I, it's just really, it's a tragedy. And it's yeah. a tragedy when we don't have an excuse for anti-intellectualism. Like, let's look at some of these verses. Verse 22, and truth is knowledge of things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come. Verse 29, man was also in the beginning with God. Intelligence or the light of truth was not created or made, neither indeed can be. Uh, verse 30, all truth is independent in that sphere in which God has placed it to act for itself as all intelligence also. Otherwise, there is no existence. Verse 36, the glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Like, hello? Like, light and truth forsake that evil one. I wanted to read that next oh, verse. Oh, yeah, read the next verse. Yeah. What does it say? Light and truth forsake that evil one. Yes. So why we need to put away all this evil and put away all this mess. It's just now I'm repeating myself. This is like the seventh time I've said this. <laughs> given our heritage, given that we are the truly restored church. Well, now here, here I am. Like, look at how God's people were led um, in the Hebrew Bible. That was a mess. God was pulling teeth. And same thing with the <laughs> New Testament. God's people are always going to be stiff-necked and stubborn and not... And we're going to be the worst in some ways. Yeah. And so it's a matter of grace that God is is uh, working with us. Yeah. But we can do better. We should do better. We should be a light to the, to the nations. We should be up there saying, hey, look, those Mormons were marching for queer rights way before it was popular. They must have a tap into moral truth. Right? Now, now... We're gonna see, we're we're behind. Like I don't know why we aren't better at this than we are. Uh yeah, amen, brother. Uh, not much to add beyond that. Uh, one idea I got that harkens back to a statement that President Hinckley made with regard to uh, women's ordination is that the church doesn't yet feel like what we need or what should be happening on our end is a requirement for the church. Uh, at the moment, I don't have a solution that goes much further beyond what the two of us are doing right now with the show. 
one thing that it has shown me thus far is how many people actually resonate with what you just said. As it was with Elisha's servant, I feel like my eyes have been touched to see that there are indeed more with us than those that are against us. But until all of us make that noise, the church won't feel much need to change. Uh, even many that listen to the show stop at listening to the show. They already feel like they're doing the work. And I say this with love because I know how uncomfortable it is to do what is required for the full affirmation of our siblings on the margins. I'm directly affected by this, and there have been several uncomfortable moments for me that I didn't want to act on. I bore my testimony at Genesis at the beginning of this month, and I was uncomfortable saying uncomfortable things, even though that space was the closest thing to a church space made for my people. Like, I legitimately got nervous, and I feel like I said too much without saying much of anything, and that hurts my soul. Um, I'm doing that a bit now. I'm sorry. But uh, the point I really want to make is that the church ain't going to make changes until we require them to, and that is going to take more effort than most of us are putting in right now, uh, perhaps myself in included. It's And it's tough because I can see— we, we've talked about Krister Stendhal's three rules for religious understanding. I was going to bring that up today, bro. And the third one is holy envy. Yeah. And I have a lot of holy envy for our Unitarian Universalist siblings. Like, mm -hmm. there's not a UU church that I go by that doesn't have a Black Lives Matter flag mm -hmm. in front of them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have a pride flag in front of them. Probably mm -hmm. year round. They have a Black mm -hmm. Lives Like, that is a prophet. That, mm -hmm. is, that is a prophetic act. And and I get that just putting out a flag isn't isn't enough, right? But that's way better than what we're doing. <laughs> I've never seen an LDS building that has Black Lives Matter on the front. You want you want to get respect from mm -hmm. God and man? Put a Black Lives Matter flag. At least some performative solidarity. Right. Uh, let me just read the UU principles because I think there's something we could learn from them. Mm -hmm. So the Unitarians and the Universalists merged in 1961. Both had been liberal Protestant uh, traditions that eventually outgrew their heritage in some ways, uh, incorporated a lot of pluralistic um, things. And so they're no longer, I would call them Christian denominations. They're, they have Christians in them and they're Christian rooted, but they have a lot of neo-pagans, atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, Buddhists. There's just a lot of... Uh, um, a diversity among Unitarian Universalists today, especially elsewhere in the country, you've got more secular humanists. A lot of UUs in the New England area are still Christian. But anyway, here are their, their seven principles, which are not dogma or doctrine, but they're basically, hey, let's kind of coalesce around these things. Mm -hmm. They're very much a non-dogmatic church. And I think we, at our best, are non-dogmatic because we don't have creeds or confessions like the Protestants or Catholics do that say you have to check, this is exactly how you need to phrase the doctrine, and this is... Well, anyway, let's go back to these seven principles. Number one, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It's sad that that needs to be said, because that should be taken for granted that every religion would value the inherent worth and dignity of every person. But sadly, we as a church don't value the inherent worth and dignity of queer people no. or other people. Like, they might say it, but they don't. Mm -hmm. Second principle, two, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Three, 
acceptance of one another, and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. Four, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. I love that. A free and responsible search for truth and meaning. Mm -hmm. Come on. And in our church, our our search is not really free, <laughs> and it's not really responsible. It's mm. not really free because a lot of people think that everything gets spoon-fed from Salt Lake, and we're not free to disagree with them. We mm. have to. There are Mormons who are afraid to read certain documents or click on certain links because it might damage their faith. Right? That's not a free search. Mm -hmm. If they are conditioned to be afraid of certain sources or to say, no, good Mormons don't go there, or good Mormons only read this type of thing, mm -hmm. or, or good Mormons don't disagree with the pro. That's not a free search for mm -hmm. truth and meaning. And also, free and responsible. Mm -hmm. That's the other side of the coin. Yes, it's free, but it's got to be responsible. Yeah. This business about the vaccine, yeah, people are searching, but it's not responsible mm -hmm. if they are uh, searching for truth in a way that ends up not even understanding the whole vaccine thing, not being on board with it. I just don't understand why we don't have a better value in our tradition of a free and responsible church search for truth and meaning. Mm. Five, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large. So the Unitarian Universalists are congregational in their polity, that they vote on everything. They vote on uh, who their next minister is going to be. They're going to vote on all of these other things. And so you have um, uh, that piece to their, to their polity. Six, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Uh, seven, respect for the inner respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. And here's where you get the, um, uh, the environment, you get the respect for a variety of cultures and religions and stuff like that. So this interdependent web. And, you know, we're dealing with... Dr. King said there were three great evils, if I have this right. Capitalism, militarism, and racism. And we're still dealing with them. We haven't made really much progress on those. And I would add a fourth evil, anti-environmentalism. And I think I definitely think that if Dr. King had lived into the 70s and 80s, he would have absolutely been on the um, environmental train as well. Because mm -hmm. it is a justice issue. It's a capitalistic issue. It's a military and racist issue as well. Like mm -hmm. all this is messed up. And, and maybe he even did say stuff about the environment. I just don't. I'm not. I'm the white person that just can't quote <laughs> Dr. King right now. Like I, I'm sure he did say some things. But my point is, those four things: capitalism, racism, militarism, and anti-environmentalism, are real sins. And our church has not been good in calling out those sins. Those are the biggest things. I didn't even list homophobia. You didn't. It's not that big of a sin. I hate to say it. But that's, that's actually got easy fixes. Mm -hmm. I think in 20 to 30 years, we're not going to be wrestling with homophobia. We're still going to be wrestling with racism 30 years from now. I think the, the, I, the, the, the analogy I want to make is about dueling. I think 200 years ago, dueling was a uh, 
you know, think about Alexander Hamilton, was a major moral debate, right? People argued about whether doing, we don't argue about that anymore. Like, we're past that. I think we're going to get past uh, all of this homophobia stuff in a in a, another generation and it's basically going to be behind us mm-hmm. but these other things are still going to be with us and we need to be prophetic about them and i'm rambling on way too much but hopefully people <laughs> will sense the passion and a little bit of frustration in what i in what i'm saying yeah man i, I certainly think so and i'm glad you brought this stuff up uh like i i was going to go in a sim- similar uh, direction with this because there are as soon as I finished reading this section, the first thing that popped into my mind, uh, or at least one of them, was um, misinformation and how that has put us in a demonstrably worse position when it comes to uh, living according to the light and truth that is available to available to us, especially where recogni- recognizing the Imago Dei in our siblings is mm-hmm. concerned. Uh, where loving loving our neighbors as ourselves, esteeming our brother or you know our sibling as ourselves is concerned. I thought specifically of the white response to critical race theory. I thought specifically of the anti-mask and anti-vaxxer movements. I thought, uh, of course, about our inability to affirm LGBTQ folks, especially trans folks, our inability to affirm uh, the disabled, the immigrant, etc. All of these exist in my opinion, because of a refusal to, as you said, responsibly, and what was the other one? Uh, a free and responsible for tr- search. Free and responsibly search for truth. Truth and meaning, yeah. Exactly. And in refusing to embrace that light and truth, we refuse to forsake the evil one, as it says in uh, verse 37 here. So I sense a uh, deep connection between emulating the Savior, uh, becoming the beings we're supposed to become, learning and living into this light and truth and uh and you know living the first and second great commandments i see we we worship god by emulating him and we emulate him by discerning learning and living into light and truth Mm -hmm. loving god and our neighbor is certainly one of those truths and i don't see the light in you know placing our right to ignore medical advice over the safety of our neighbor i don't see the light in, this, in insisting that queer folks aren't entitled to love and respect the same way that the rest of us are i don't see the light in refusing to give ourselves and our children a honest assessment of our history of injustices as a people that our presence and futures might be more equitable and just because it makes certain folks in our population, primarily the beneficiaries of that injustice, uncomfortable, scared, and guilty. You know, just if if the love of neighbor and God truly was there, I feel like it would overpower those things, that fear. And as you discussed a couple weeks back, if we understood the job of the comforter, we wouldn't try to do its job, you know? Just yeah. misinformation, it's a problem. I don't think it's the primary problem here because I don't believe the problem to be purely a lack of knowledge, a lack of light and truth, as it were. I don't believe that all these people need is information. And, you know, I'm sure as you can attest to by going on the Internet, um, if good information, if the right information was all that people needed. You know, I don't know that we'd be here because the right information has been out there for a long well, time. I have a theory about that because last week I made the analogy of an athletic cup, 
right? Uh-huh. And I was wondering, well, what where high impact sports, the athletes, it doesn't matter what political party they are. They all wear a cup when they need to. I think it's because people understand how the cup works. Like everyone knows how the cup works. Mm-hmm. And everyone knows what happens if you don't wear the cup. Yep. I think with the vaccine, there's people that don't know how the vaccine works. And I have to say, I don't know in detail, as a scientist would, how I know in the outline how the vaccine works, but I'm not an expert on the vaccine mm-hmm. the way. Um, but there's a lot of people that don't know that it's safe. They don't know how it works. They don't know the the issues around probability and population statistics around why it's important to have a highly uh, high proportion of the population vaccinated. They don't Mm -hmm. have those facts. I think a lot of people are, well, I hope a lot of people are good people that are willing to do the right thing as soon as they know what it is and understand it. I think a big part of it is the lack of courage to go out and find the truth, which is exactly what this section is about. The glory of God is intelligence. Mm -hmm. In other words, light and truth. And I think that there's people who are kept from the truth by their social media and their filter bubbles and all this other stuff. And they don't, to them, the, it's, that's why it's different than the cup is, uh, people know the need for a cup and they know how the cup works and it's yeah and then the vaccine just somehow is different Mm. well i actually got a theory about this too if uh you don't mind me sharing it um perhaps it is courage to seek correct information that is needed i think it's a great word though i may pick a different one as i talk but i i got a but i got a theory about this as well Uh, That goes a bit further because it seeks to answer the question, why don't they have the courage to seek the right information? Why do they think they have the right information? Why can't they receive uh, information uh, that goes contrary to what they know? I don't think they're dumb. I I don't think they're uh, ignorant. I don't think lack of information, explanation, or book recommendation is the problem, even though I tried my darndest as what I thought was a dutiful Christian to provide these things for those who said and did harmful and ignorant things to and about folks on the margins. None of that really gets to the heart of what those folks need, though. What they need is to repent and heal because they are spiritually sick for... Like, how else could you believe that your right to ignore medical advice from medical experts and the prophet now trumps the safety of those around you? I think I said this last week. Like, how are you going to say you're scared of a free vaccine's contents because you don't know what's in there? Meanwhile, you're paying for McDonald's and gas station pills, store brand energy drinks, and you don't seem to know what's in any of those. You, you don't trust the vaccine because you don't know what's in that, but you claim to trust the scriptures, and I know you don't know what's in those. Like, how is Steve Christiansen of the Utah House of Representatives and the church going to go on a black professor, author, and journalist's show to oppose critical race theory and cite as his primary source of a grievance a demonstrable falsehood that he couldn't uphold with the words of any critical race theorists? Like, how are we out here insisting that we don't like racism, that we want to abolish racism, but we are 
clinging to literal lies in order to not do the work that critical race theory is trying to encourage? How are we out here insisting that we love queer people while keeping them out of the rooms where conversations about their lives are concerned or refusing to talk about the consequences of those conversations on their lives? These aren't stupid or simply uninformed people. They are sick. They don't, they don't need information. They, they need healing. And that healing comes by means of repentance. Information has been available for a long time. Folks on the margins have been crying to the privileged for a long time. The decision to not get proximate to injustice or worse, to stop your ears and your hearts to light and truth to intelligence, that's a step toward the evil one, as it says here in uh, section 93, verse, verse uh, 37. And this is fueled and enabled by a Christianity that uh, that that moves in what what Dr. Willie James Jennings calls a diseased social imagination, without the ability to discern how his intellectual and pedagogical performances reflect and fuel this problem, further crippling the uh, communities it's supposed to serve. In other words, folks are sick, and the institution encourages them to stay sick, which kind of. Uh, goes back to our earlier conversation about what it is about the church that produces or uh, enables white supremacy, right, right-wing extremism, queer phobia, and you know all that other stuff. It's just hard to live into real discipleship when the institution seems to be telling you otherwise, seems to be enabling otherwise, seems to be almost encouraging otherwise. I guess that's true for a lot of people, but for me, it's it's easier to just get on board with the truth. It's faster. It takes less work. We were, okay, but so all of you listeners, we were talking about how sometimes it's difficult for me to do work I don't want to do. Yeah. Like going on, going on with the board with the truth as soon as you can saves you work because it's a lot of work to try to defend a falsehood. You have Mm -hmm. to work hard to maintain these awfulnesses, Mm -hmm. right? And I just don't want to do that work. It's just easier to get on board with the truth and move on. Mm -hmm. Like, you're going to see so many convoluted apologetics for all these evil things. Some of them are brilliant. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know why they're using their intelligence to do all this work to try to make the, the... uh, I, I'm not. I don't have any the right metaphor, but they're, they're using all this in, intelligence to try to make what is false true and what is uh-huh. true false. Mm-hmm. That they they could just save some time and effort by getting on board with the truth, and then everything is all it, it flows together. To that point, Derek, I will say one of my favorite things and also least favorite things that my therapist does is when I come to her complaining about a problem that I've been struggling with for a while, or when I like hit rock bottom with a particular problem. She'll just say, you tired yet? Are you tired? Mm. And I'm just like, yes, ma'am. What do I got to do to not do this anymore? And it's usually some work that I don't want to do that I think it's hard, but it's much more difficult to sit where I am at this particular moment because that is going to cost me a lot more energy and a lot more precious time and a lot more heartache than it would be if I just embraced a truth that would lift me out of that dark space that I'm in, even though it seems easier to sit there. So that's a question that I've tried to start asking myself and also other people uh, when they are like not satisfied with a certain position in their lives or when they're simply trying so hard to defend a truth that is ult- or defend a falsehood that is ultimately to their detriment is that question. You tired? You tired yet? Yeah. <laughs> you know, just and, you know, that is what it is um, for some people. They're just 
going to work themselves into the ground until they're too tired to defend the falsehood anymore. And I should name that I'm coming at this from an immense amount of privilege mm-hmm. in terms of my personality, the educational experiences that have been granted to me. Like I've gotten a lot of breaks that um, others haven't. And run. I need to name that so that a lot of this stuff is going to be easier for me because of that. Mm-hmm. And it's easy for me to say, oh, just learn more or understand more or the glory of God is intelligence. And I have to remember that not everyone has had uh, the same opportunities or breaks that, that I've had. And I need to also name that when we when we say the glory of God is intelligence, we have to also be careful around language of ableism. Because Certainly. I think to me... When it says the glory of God is intelligence, it's about understanding. It's not about aptitude. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, the more intelligent you are as an aptitude or an ability, that's the glory of God. That's not what I think it's meaning. I think the glory of God is understanding information and understand uh, knowledge. And that is separate than, than like your IQ. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we, I want to decouple that from ableist understandings of intelligence. I think it's a little bit of a weird word because intelligence can mean different things. Like mm-hmm. it can mean how smart you are. And I don't think that's what it means here. I think what it, like I saw somebody do a chart. I forget what Mormon academic it was, but they drew a chart with the words knowledge, wisdom, and intelligence on it. And, um, you know, knowledge might be just information. Then the definition of wisdom, according to this chart, was living according to true knowledge. And then the definition they had of intelligence was embodying that wisdom. And I was like, this is fine. I think that is a decent definition of intelligence, one that is not as ableist. Um, You know, obviously, there are other definitions of intelligence, but uh, I think it's one that can serve some people, if that helps. Mm. Yeah, that reminds me of this... uh this saying that tells the difference between knowledge, wisdom, and charisma. Okay. And it has to do with knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Mm-hmm. Wisdom is not putting the tomato in a fruit salad. <laughs> and charisma is being able to sell the fruit salad with the tomato in it. <laughs> <laughs> I made you laugh. Okay. Listeners, short-term victory. Short-term yep. victory. See, I actually am funny. <laughs> Derek is funny. I never said he wasn't funny. <laughs> Jokes weren't funny. Not all of them are funny. Most of them torture me, but no. Derek is funny. Yeah. Anyway, um, this segues well into what I think is the reason uh, we had this abrupt uh, pivot in section ninety-three. We go from all this. Uh, talk like even the come follow me manual kind of acknowledges verse 40 as kind of an awkward pivot from a conversation on light truth and intelligence and all these other profound doctrinal declarations to a conversation on the brethren's parenting and it's uh, very pragmatic uh and the manual as well as verse 40 also seem to indicate however that these things are uh thematically linked um i'll, I'll just uh I think it's one of the reasons that the manual asks us to consider what the previous 39 verses have to tell us about the remaining ones. Verse 40 reads, I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. 
close quote. And what do we just learn about what light and truth were? We learn that the reception of these things is how we're exalted and how we emulate Jesus. It's how we worship the divine. So it stands to reason that a parent that doesn't raise their children in light and truth, a parent that doesn't raise their children this way, is therefore committing one of the biggest sins that a person can commit. Now, I don't know what Frederick G. Williams and Sidney Rigdon were doing wrong in their houses exactly, but I thought immediately of parents of queer children and parents of the children in Utah right now who don't have CRT in their schools anymore. There's people that these are people that fail to recognize the image of God in their children because they're different and they treat them like they're disposable as a result. There are parents who are willfully, intentionally choosing to have their children misinformed. And those children will grow up in a difficult world as a result because they are not taught to critically engage their history as a, you know, our history as a nation and our history as, you know, white people who have benefited at the injustice of other people in this country. Um, that brings with it tremendous consequences. So I see immediately that thematic link between what we've just learned in Doctrine and Covenants section 93 and why the Lord is telling, uh, you know, his servants to raise their children in light and truth, because there are tremendous consequences to basically not letting your children worship God the right way or not letting your children become more like Jesus Christ. Uh, what do you think about this little switch. Yeah, I think so. And that reminds me of there's just like cultural commonplaces that happen in our church. I think based on our second article of faith that says, I don't have it exactly memorized, but it's the one that says we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgressions. Verbatim. <laughs> and people bring that into this big thing of there's, they say, oh, there's no collective understanding of sin you look at the book of mormon you look at the hebrew bible you look mm -hmm. at the new testament yep commute there is communal uh blessing and communal curse right yep uh and we see this with the pandemic mm -hmm. like we're in this together it's not like oh you're individual like yeah if if my neighbor if my neighbor's house catches on fire mine could catch on fire too this isn't everything is all contained so you do see in the scriptures issues of collective blessing and collective tragedy that can transcend the individual things that someone does or doesn't do. Like if your village gets attacked by uh, some invading army, right? It's your village as a whole that gets attacked. It, it, there's communal curses and communal blessings. And I'm not putting a theology around this and saying like, oh, how that all actually works. But I'm saying there does exist collective well-being and not well-being. And the vaccine and the pandemic feed into this. And I think this is going back up. Yeah, you have a responsibility to teach your children correctly because of this collective benefit that it gives to the entire community. Mm -hmm. Like if your kid doesn't know how to drive very well, for example, they could hit my car, right? Mm -hmm. There's ways that if, if I don't understand why people in our church have, and this feeds back into the critical race theory because they're like, oh, I'm not responsible for the sins of my <laughs> ancestors. And yeah, you're not responsible for them as though you're you not have, to blame for them. 
In That's the what sense, I would say. Right. You're not responsible or to blame for them in the sense of that you did them. You didn't do them. But you're responsible for the effects and the benefit that you continue to reap from the injustice. It's like if I steal money from you and give it to my friend, my friend doesn't know it was stolen money. It was never mine to give, so it was never his to receive. Mm-hmm. He does not validly own that money. Mm-hmm. If Even though he didn't was not to blame, that money will get taken from him and given back to you because it's your money. Mm-hmm. And to take away the money from him isn't punishing him. It's not an injustice. It is not a punishment mm-hmm. because that was never rightfully... It, it's different than like if I... If I get a, a parking ticket and I have to pay the fine, yeah, that is a punishment because you're taking away my money. But if it's money that was stolen and given to me, you're not taking away my money. You're taking the money that is someone else's and giving it back to that same someone else. So righting the wrongs of structural and systematic racism is not a punishment. Right. Like I don't understand why people are saying that we will not be punished for um, Adam's transgression and that has anything to do with critical race theory. And even still, the hole in that argument is that we still have inherited the effects of the fall. You know? Yeah. We still got to deal with that fallout. Like, if we were truly not to blame for it, then, you know, we wouldn't have to live in a fa- fallen world or mm-hmm. whatever. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? But we do live in a fallen world because of the decisions of our first parents. And we are ultimately responsible for how we live in that world, for taking advantage of the atonement that the effects of the fall might be overcome. You know, again, not to blame for it in the sense that we did it, but we are responsible for the effects of it. We haven't inherited those effects and we got to choose whether or not we're going to accept the accept like accept the means of overcoming the effects of that fall. And let me just bring up one of Jesus's teachings here. This is in Luke 11 verse 50. Let's go Luke. I one. love Luke. We're going to go into this is also in Matthew 23. Here's what uh here's what well, let me find it and get to where we're going. All right. Okay. So verse 47, okay, so let's go back to verse 46. Woe unto you, ye lawyers, um, and so on. Woe if you build sepulchers, sepulchers of the prophets and your fathers killed them, so on and so forth. And so it says, um, verse 50, that the blood of all the prophets, which was the blood which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. Do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. I don't like this. I'm going to Matthew's version. Okay. <laughs> so just delete all that. We're going to Matthew 23. Okay. Okay, so here's what Matthew says. Uh, This is his famous discourse against the scribes and Pharisees. Now, I just want to pause and say we should not use this in a way that's anti-Jewish. So Mm -hmm. just put that disclaimer in there. But verse 34 through 36, here's what Jesus says. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city 
that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Now notice something very interesting. Abel was the first martyr in the Hebrew Bible, and this Zacharias, the son of Berechiah, is uh, the last at the end of Second Chronicles, if you look at the Hebrew order. So the Hebrew Bible in the Hebrew order ends with Second Chronicles. I don't know if people know that. So Jesus is saying from the very beginning of the first book to the very end of the last book of the Hebrew Bible, we've got these martyrs who have been killed. Now notice what he says. He says, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. He's talking to the living scribes and Pharisees in the first century and said, you killed this guy. Isn't that interesting? He says, all this blood from Abel to the blood of Zechariah will come upon this generation. So there's a sense in which they are participating in the sins of their, they're continuing to participate in the sins of their ancestors by rejecting Jesus and rejecting the, the, the apostles. Mm. And I think there's totally room for Jesus to teach us about, um, at least in some sense, people can be connected with these sins that happened centuries before they happen, before they came upon the scene, if they continue in that same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so there you got. Jesus did teach. Now, I'm not going to say he taught inherited guilt because that's that's a little bit of misleading, but he did teach this connection between what happened in the past and being accountable for it today. Mm-hmm. I'm getting tired. <laughs> Speaking of being accountable, I just want to notice, uh, I want us to note what it says in verse 47. And now verily I say unto Joseph Smith Jr., you have not kept the commandments and must needs stand rebuked before the Lord. So look, this again, prophets aren't perfect. They don't keep the commandments perfectly. They don't understand God's will perfectly. Um we need to we need to name that. I think one of the biggest problems in our church is this non-doctrinal focus on well, we got to agree with the prophets. They're right, mm-hmm. and they won't lead you astray, and they they're always right. And and that that actually is not true. That's just not true. And verse fifty three. And verily I say unto you that it is my will that ye should hasten to translate my scriptures and to obtain a knowledge of history and of countries and of kingdoms of laws of God and man and all this for the salvation of Zion. I love this final phrase. Yeah, all mm. this other stuff that seems secular in nature, which is where critical race theory gets covered. Clearly, mm-hmm. that's about um, history, countries, kingdoms, laws of God and man. All of that is for the salvation of Zion. Have you ever heard this phrase in the church that I don't like? That some people will come up with a question and they'll say, oh, that's not a salvation issue or it's not necessary for your salvation. <laughs> I'm like, it is. It mm-hmm. says all this for the salvation of Zion. Mm-hmm. If we're living into a Zion community and we are going to get the collective blessings that God has for us, we need to do the work of understanding these secular truths. Including how the vaccine works, how racism mm-hmm. works, how these all these things work. So I'm just so glad that we have 
a prophetic word in DNC 93 that gives us everything we need, every springboard to apply the truths that we learn to the salvation of Zion. Hmm. All right. On that note, then, let us go ahead and wrap some things up. But before we do, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at BTBLDS. And we're also on Facebook. Yep, we are in all those spots. Um, also wanted to uh, give a special thanks to, oh, events. Do we got any of those come up in addition to the Affirmation oh, Conference? Oh, yes. The Affirmation Conference, I just found out this week that I've been invited to be on a panel that discusses queer theology. So I want everyone oh, to... And I don't even I don't know when this is exactly what when it is, but if you register, there's going to be now. Remember, registration is free, and the conference is virtual this year, so there's basically no excuses for this. And the um, there will be a panel discussion on queer theology hosted by Blair Osler, and I've been invited to be one of the panelists on that panel. So it's going to be a great conversation. Um, I don't know how they're going to fit me into the time frame. They're just going to have to use that mute button. Mm. Uh, <laughs> what I it mean, is, we is discuss I'm, one section a day and we're already at an hour 10. So uh, what they're going to, what I'm going to have to do is just plan and have one, one small point uh, that I'll have to fit in the time. Yeah. I'm, I'm going just so I can see how Derek <laughs> does this, but uh, looking forward to it nonetheless. Uh, what was do we got a do we got a date? Hold up, I see I a flyer sep- here. Uh, I think it's September eleventh. Is that right? I'm not even sure. I'm gonna look this up right now. So I've seen the posts coming out. Here we go. Okay, September eleventh from eleven a.m. to one p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. We'll put a little. Oh, what is this exactly? This is a panel discussion. That's what the panel discussion is. So I guess it'll just be that weekend. Yeah, I'm not sure how the how the scheduling of that day is, if it's a multi-day thing or if it's, I don't know what it is. All right, hopefully we can get some stuff there. That, that's on a Saturday. Uh, we'll see what else is going on that day. Hopefully we'll get a more uh, complete picture of what the day is going to look like in the coming in the coming weeks, even though time is kind of closing in. It's like, what we, this is three weeks? It's not that... It's not exactly far out anymore, so we'll try to get that information on our social media as soon as we can. Uh, Any other events we got to let the people on? Nope, I don't think so. All right. Then uh, just a couple of uh, special thanks to members of our team, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, uh, David Doyle for uh, editing the uh, transcripts, uh, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with our social media presence, and also the team doing the incredible work of assembling 
these episode outlines that we got. Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, uh, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson as well. Uh, those outlines also include the uh, Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from the same week. So you can have kind of like a one-stop shop for all your uh, Come Follow Me needs. Uh, we also got a link to the outlines that's going to be in the uh, show notes. And it's also going to be in the uh, drop-down menu on our website. Same goes for the uh, transcripts. Yeah, you can also find them at tinyurl.com slash outlines. Do we got uh, anything else we got to put the people on? Nope. Very good. Oh, I just had an idea of how to make money. Okay. I can teach people to do stand-up comedy, and oh, people sorry. will pay me to... Because I don't feel right making money off the gospel, but I do feel right making money off of me teaching people how to be funny. All and right. I need all y'all listening to this right now to DM Derek right now, harass him, and just let him know that even the church pays the plumber. Tired of listening to Derek say he don't want to make money off the gospel. You ain't making money off the gospel, Derek. You have done over 20 years of work on this stuff, and people would kill to have this kind of information spoon-fed to them in ways that matter without them having to do what yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah, well... So let the people pay you. <laughs> no! Let the people pay you. No, it's it, to uh. me it's a justice issue because this is life-saving content that I don't feel I I could pay for. All right, then I have mean, a I free should... version of that content. But like okay. when people are taking your time, like with these projects that I keep trying to have you do, I'm not going to go public with any of these ideas. Well, until now, Derek... now, now I'm going to be on OnlyFans because oh, now that God. it's been now that it's been sanitized. <laughs> what do you mean it's been sanitized? They're did taking hear... porn off of it. Yeah, did you Yo, hear about this? What? Yes. No, there, I it didn't. says like OnlyFans is now going to be after a certain deadline. There's going to be no more explicit content, and so now I can use OnlyFans as a way of teaching people comedy. I will teach you stand up. I will teach you how to um, tell jokes and make friends. It's true. I will tell you how. Like, see, I'll be on OnlyFans and I'll get all this money from people who want to learn how to hurt their friends. Well, I don't know about that. If OnlyFans <laughs> really is kicking all the porn off of their website, they're going to be bankrupt in a little bit. But that's just my opinion. That ain't none of my business. <laughs> um, anyway, on that note, <laughs> thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week. Till we meet again next week. Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.